I love reading books on many topics, um, business, real estate, the risk mitigation, but also mindset. Mindset is huge. And if you can't conquer yourself, how are you going to conquer the world? Hello, and thank you for joining us today on the Gentle Art of Crushing It show, where we focus on learning and sharing with our listeners all there is to know about how to create success in our lives. This show stands on the shoulders of giants. Our mission is to empower and inspire our listeners to create the life of their dreams whilst having a blast in the process. Let's celebrate life together. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Gentle Art of Crushing It. Today I am your host, Sean Graham, and as always, I focus on self-storage. Uh, I have with me today Fernando Angelucci. Fernando is a good friend of mine. Um, he is a master in the self-storage industry, an absolute expert. He's done over $200 million of self-storage deals, and uh, he's only 31 years old. In this episode, we get into everything from mindset to self-storage to traveling in uh, Brazil, lots of book recommendations. He's just a great resource. So highly recommend uh, listening to this. We might break it down into a two-part series and uh, just go ahead and look for both episodes. Without further ado, we will get started. Fernando, welcome to the Gentle Art of Crushing It. How are you doing, man? Doing good, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm like super excited to have you on. I've been trying to get you on this podcast for a couple know, how of months long now. now. I've been bugging you. <laughs> yeah, a couple of months. I keep sending you the Calendly invite, and you're like, okay, cool, yeah. So now it's it's Saturday in the middle of March, and I'm like, I'll do it anytime. You're like, all right, let's do it tomorrow. So here we go. Uh, it's a little more relaxed this way anyways, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. If you have a self-storage deal on your hands or you have land that could be great for developing self-storage, reach out to me, reach out to the team. Uh, our websites are mavenstorage.com and mavenequities.com. You can also email me at sean, S-E-A-N, at mavenequities.com. We are looking to partner with more landowners for self-storage developments as well as self-storage uh, acquisitions that have value-add potential. We focus on off-market deals for the most part, most part off-market self-storage opportunities, and we like to uh, work with landowners who just want to partner with somebody who has that experience and, and knows uh, whether it'd be a good location, whether this is going to work. Anyways, uh, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to connecting. So, okay, I, I guess let's just do the you know the backstory and stuff so people know who you are. Um, I don't want to... Don't want to dwell on all that too much, right? Because you've been on over a hundred podcasts now, and if people want to know like how you got started and everything, like they can go back and listen to all the self storage details. But I want to, you know, focus more about like life and now and where things are going. Um, but that being said, yeah, give us the give us the story. Yeah, so I'll, I'll kind of give the three minute elevator backstory. So, son of two immigrants from Brazil, they uh, once they got to the United States, it's kind of the old school American dream. So they wanted me to get, you know, good grades, go to school, get good grades again, graduate, go work for a Fortune 50 company and then, you know, retire with a pension 40 years later. So that was the plan until I was 16 and I read Rich Dad Poor Dad. And 
it completely changed my life. Um, I never was a very good reader. I didn't like reading. I was more a math science type guy. And I devoured that book in like two and a half days, I think. From there, um, I started reading every book I can get my hands on about business, uh, setting up entities, real estate, you know, what have you. And uh, when it came time to decide to go to school, you know, I was like, oh, you know, this business ownership thing is pretty cool. And my dad was like, hey, <laughs> I don't want to hear it. You know, like you're going to go get a degree and the, the degree is going to end in the words engineering is what's going to happen. I was like, all right. So I um, I did go to University of Illinois. It's actually where I went and met my business partner, Stephen. I think he was actually on your show already. And uh, the entire time I was at school, I was – I kind of had like a dual track. I had the engineering track, but then I was also reading everything and learning everything I could about business ownership and real estate to the point where I actually ran my first business when I was 19 at school. Um, ran a, a painting company where on the weekends I would take a bus back from U of I to Chicago and I would knock on doors. I'd do, literally do door knocking all weekend long, asking people if they wanted me to paint their house in the summer, uh, the exterior of the homes. So I, I I ended up booking a bunch of business, hired my friends, and then as a nineteen year old, I made like sixty seven thousand dollars or something the first the first year of that business. Um, so that was Dude, that's crazy. To I mean, date, that's more than a starting salary coming out of college with a lot of degrees. It was more than my first year salary after I graduated as an engineer. <laughs> so wow. that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because. It was oh, my, yeah. I was like thrown into being a business owner. And I just had to learn on the fly, right? This jump out of the plane and build a parachute before you hit the ground type of mentality. So that was super cool. Um, then as, you know, time went on, uh, I think Stephen probably told you this story. You know, there's times where I was in my room, like reading. I remember this one specific time. It was a Friday. Stephen walked in with like a 12 pack of beer. And he's like, let's go to this party. And I was like, ah, give me like, give me 40 minutes. I just need to finish this one chapter. And he's like, what are you reading? And was, the book was called Tax-Free Wealth by Tom Wheelwright. And he's like, you're such a nerd. <laughs> this, That's amazing. This 19-year-old reading a book about taxes, you know. <laughs> so um, graduated, worked for Dow Chemical, which at the time was like Fortune 48 or something. So it was like in the Fortune 50 huge company i got stationed out in des moines iowa to help roll okay. out because they're like, in michigan right aren't they so they're the, like midland or something I midland say? michigan is where like the parent company headquarters is okay. i worked for right. their agrosciences division and that's actually based in indianapolis but my division my territory my sales territory was the state of iowa so i stayed in des moines which is like right in the middle of iowa um, and I helped roll is out. Is that the middle of nowhere? Or is, no. it, like, is there no, stuff it, to do? In, oh, okay. man, Des Moines is awesome. I still is one of my favorite okay. cities to this day. It's so cool. One day we'll, we'll have to go together. So yeah. worked for them for about 13 months is, is how long I lasted in the 9 to 5 world. And immediately I started going to seminars, joined the local RIA group, um, started wholesaling houses is the very first way I got involved in, in real estate. <clears throat> and then, you know, as time went on, I was like, Hey, I could really use someone that thinks like Steven does. Right. Because I have a very methodical risk averse kind of engineer style m mindset. And, you know, 
analysis, spreadsheet, stuff like that. And I needed someone that was a little bit more risk tolerant and had kind of that creative side as well. Um, so that's when I started sending pictures of my checks to Steven. <laughs> and after a while, he's like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, who's, who's paying you this money? It clearly doesn't say Dow Chemical on it. What's going on? And so I started telling him about the wholesaling business and taught him how to do that. Fast forward. We start doing wholesaling. We start flipping houses. We start buying and holding single-family homes. Then we start doing the same thing on multifamily because we noticed that if you just add a zero, things become easier for roughly the same amount of effort. So then we started wholesaling, flipping, and holding multifamily homes. We got involved in hard money lending. We got involved in um, short-term rentals. I mean, you name it. And all that was you know, good and fine, but I was being pulled in way too many directions. I had like, I think at the time, like five businesses that were running it all at the same time, somewhat related, but it's five different businesses. And I said, this isn't working. And, you know, I want to scale much faster. You know, I want to start adding some zeros onto my net worth here. So that's when we ended up uh, through kind of serendipity. Steven met a guy named Casey. I think you know him very well as well. And he kind of put us on to self-storage. So then we went and I think I went to a conference in Indianapolis. I heard Scott Myers speak. I said, if everything you're saying is true, like, I'm in. Here's my credit card, whatever you got. And um, from that point on, I just started doing storage. So that was in 2016. And then we started selling off our entire portfolio and shutting down all of our non-storage companies between 2016 and 2018. Okay. Then we bought our first facility in August of 2018 for a million bucks. That was through a partnership. And you'll notice, you know, you and I are partners on storage facilities. Over 40% of our holdings are with other partners because we found that it's easier to operate when you have multiple people with multiple different resources, multiple ways of thinking, you know, more heads at the table type thing. Um, And then, you know, flash forward, uh, here we are, March 2023. We've done over $220 million worth of storage. I have an- another $140 million lined up already this year. Um, primarily ground-up development, just because of the way the market has been changing uh, as of late to the last 18 months. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about it, and it's like, I remember when I discovered Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was 26, by 26, you had already started like five, six businesses. Like, they, like if I had discovered it when I was 18, 19, rather than like going to college parties and stuff too, or maybe mixing a little bit in, like, man, that's just, that's incredible. Because that book, like, same thing. It changed the trajectory of my life and like my career path. It was like, whoa, like I don't have to go like stay in corporate accounting we're in corporate finance and like work my way up. And if I don't become a CFO, like I'm a failure. It's like, I don't have to do that. Like there's other ways to live this life and have control of your own time. So, and that's the crazy part is, I mean, in school, we're just being basically trained to be a cog in someone else's machine. And it's mm-hmm. very rare that schools will let you know that there's other options. I mean, every once in a while, I hear people say, hey, you know, there was an entrepreneurship class at my high school. I was like, I wish I had that. You know, I had to basically find it all on my own. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's a profound book. And I think it's profound not in that it gives you like a blueprint, but it just opens you up to the idea that there's other ways of going through life and making money and building wealth. Yeah, for sure. Um 
Hey, yeah, it's changed your entire life. And I mean, look at how old are you now? 31, is it? 31. 31 and $220 million worth of self-storage like deals that you have been a part of. Like that's, that's amazing. Um, and it's just, it's making the choice. I think like making the choice to go out on your own, take some risks, like just not just follow this path that's laid out in front of you as if you have no choice, like through school, through engineering. So kudos to you, man. That's really cool. Um, Thanks. so I think we should mention, like, tell us where you are right now. Like, you're not, you're not calling from Chicago. You're, where are you? I'm currently in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, I've been here for about a month. I've been in Brazil for about six months. So um, about to end my little journey awesome. down south and head back to the U.S. because we have the Inside Self Storage World Expo in Vegas in April. And then I also am speaking at the Self Storage Mastermind in Napa Valley um, the week after that. So I was like, I guess I have to come back eventually. <laughs> okay. Is that the, uh, Scott Myers event? Yeah. So we speak there every, every quarter. Yeah. You've been a part of that since like the beginning, right? So Scott's been a big part of your just growth and just trajectory. Yeah. So I, um, you know, we took his class, you know, I think 2015, 2016, something like that. I can't remember the exact year. And then, we very quickly got our, you know, first couple wholesale deals, storage wholesale deals, and then bought our first facility. And then when we bought our first facility, they extended the offer to say, hey, would you like to come, you know, check out this mastermind we have? If you like it, you can join. If not, totally fine. And I ended up really loving it. Um, and it turns out I was actually, I ended up being in a different mastermind with Scott at the same time, it's a collective genius. So I like that format of physically meeting quarterly for three to five days at a location away from the business. I, f I feel like the learning is great, but the connections that you make is truly why they're so great. Um, you know, your network is your net worth. I've, I've tried other masterminds that are like online or have like weekly or monthly calls. And it's just like, that is not the way that I learn. And I have a very difficult time building relationships that way. I'm a face-to-face -face type of person. I need to see you. I need to break bread with you, drink a beer, you know, what have you, um, for me to really kind of get to know who you are and what your goals are, what your core values are, you know, most importantly, to see if this is something that we can do together. So it, it's been fantastic. And I always tell people, if you've, if you've read Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, I think that was where I first realized that masterminds were a way to really excel accelerate your growth in any given industry, um, especially if the mastermind is set up in a way that allows you to share truly intimate details about your business without fear of someone coming in and stealing your idea or, you know, it has to be a mastermind that starts from a place of abundance, you know, go giver style mentality. Yeah, I love that. Cause I mean, that, right, abundance is, like my biggest core value. And I told Steven this, I, I said to Steven, you know, you and Fernando, like you guys both are the epitome of that word abundance, which is pretty cool to find because, you know, I don't know, I, growing up, like whenever I had a business idea, it was always like, hey, don't share that with anybody, make them sign, sign an NDA, you know, like everybody's going to steal everything for you, from you. And the problem is you don't, you don't really make any progress. Like you just kind of say, okay, you have this great idea, you want to do something, but you can't share it with anybody. You can't 
you know, work with anybody. It's just like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And I started realizing on my own, you know, like without the influence of other people saying, hey, be scared, have a scarcity mindset, don't share anything. Like uh, the more you give, like the more you receive. I think you very much, right, believe in the law of attraction. Like what you put out there in the world is what you're going to get back. Um, So like how has that worked for you guys? And how did you develop that mindset more importantly? Yeah, so – a few things I want to touch on that you said. So I, I hate that fallacy of, you know, don't share your ideas with other people because they'll steal it for two reasons. Number one, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's execution that makes results, right? So you could tell a million people. This is what I always tell people about the info marketing business, right? The people that sell education. The reason those people get sued all the time is not because they're not selling good education. It's because... of the people that take those classes will never actually do the work. And then they get pissed that they didn't buy some magic pill that's going to immediately solve all the problems without having to put any effort in. And then the easiest thing for them to do is go sue somebody and say, well, this guy's a scammer or whatever, you know. Um, That's number one. Number two, business and real estate in general is a team sport. So if you try to do it by yourself, you're always going to be that one-man shop that's barely paying his bills. So now you moved from having a job to owning a job, you know, and that sucks. There's no way you're going to excel. Um, So what I found is, you know, I I used to not be an avid reader. I wasn't a big fan of that type of stuff. But after reading Rich Dad and a few more books after that, I realized that, you know, knowledge, investing in yourself is – is the most important investment that you can make. And books have this asymmetric risk-reward. They cost basically nothing. And the amount of information that you can learn from these books is absolutely fantastic. As opposed to, say, taking a $30,000 course for a three-day weekend or whatever, I can get that same course in a couple of books, and it costs me, you know, max 100 bucks if they're really expensive books, you know? I love books, readings. I love just educating myself and growing so much now that I actually have Amazon's like platinum audible account program where it's like you get 28 books a year, like all, all the credits all at once. And I actually have two of those because I I go through them so fast. Yeah. So, um, I love reading books on many topics, um, business, real estate, the risk mitigation, but also mindset. Mindset is huge. And if you can't conquer yourself, how are you going to conquer the world, right? So there's a lot of books that I read on having abundance mentality, having, you know, Zig Ziglar talks about this all the time. He's old school. Um, the Go-Giver is another one that uses kind of the parable setup to teach abundance. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of books. I, I have probably over 300 books in my audible account right now so i can go through them later if you want for some recommendations but what we what i found yeah what i found is that the more that you help others without expecting anything in return they end up remembering that and it may not be quid pro quo where you know you help them out and then tomorrow they're helping you out maybe five years maybe 10 years but they'll remember the the time and effort that you spent to truly help them and when an opportunity presents themselves, 
and they may not have the resources, who are they going to call first? The person that charged them for their time or the person that was freely willing to give? I mean, look at how we got together, right? So I, I go out. I don't like charging for education at all. Um, first, because of the whole, you know, 95-5 thing where, you know, hardly anybody's going to actually commit and do it. But then also on the other side is execution. I'm not worried about building competitors because, you know, of the 5% that actually do it, most of them end up being my partner or at some point partnering with me or adding value to me through relationships or connections or suggestions or ideas, what have you. Uh, and that, that has made my life so much easier to just be able to be open and honest with everyone instead of trying to be guarded and playing everything close to the chest or close to the best. Right. That's amazing. That's amazing stuff. Do you, uh, do you have any coaches? Like, do you have any like mindset coaches or any type coaching like, and that type of, um, I don't know, like thought process at all, not less like about business strategy and more keeping that abundance mentality and like calling you out and like realizing like, Hey, this is where I am having a scarcity mindset and this is what I need to change. Yeah. So I, I used to pay for coaches like that. Um, now I just read and in the age of social media, there's, you know, you should see my social media feeds when most people's are filled with, you know, dogs and kittens and, you know, that type of stuff. Mine is all like Tony Robbins, Bill Gates, you know, people that talk about this type of mindset, Richard Branson. I mean, people that I really idolize Tim, Tim Ferriss is another great one. Um, and that kind of keeps me in check. I also like to, you know, try to again conquer my own domain so you know meditation self-reflection mm-hmm. gratitude these are all things that really help on the kind of day-to-day basis so long long story short no i don't i don't have a coach for that right now i used to um, when i first started out in business i had three different coaches i had a business coach general business coach i had a self-storage coach and i had kind of like a life slash mindset coach and they all cost a pretty penny actually paid for them on credit cards <laughs> hey it was worth it right, right. it's uh, it's paid off tenfold i mean More that's really that. cool i'm just yeah i think we have we definitely have that in common i believe in like everything that you're you're saying there i think it's all very true um do you ever s- find yourself like struggling to balance it? like is there any limitations to it in terms of like you know, you go, you're go to the self storage conference. You're talking about like all of your marketing ideas or like your next steps, or like maybe it's a acquisition strategy, how to like partner with owners. And then you're like, okay, like there's kind of like a limit to it. Like, is there ever a balance or is it just, Hey, like you want to talk to me? Like I'm an open book, like let's talk. And, um, you know, like just with just understanding and knowing we'll probably end up working together. Yeah, I'm, I don't have any limitations. There's no trade secrets. I mean, everything that I do, you know, I, I love the expression, you know, if I've seen farther, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And that's because yep. everything I do, I didn't create this. I didn't invent any of this. I learned from other people, people that took me under their wing, books, the internet, what have you. And so for me, I really believe in myself to execute. I think that's one of the things I'm very good at. So if if anybody wants to sit down, I've literally showed someone my entire business, all the process, a competitor, or you know, I'm using that as an easy 
term. I don't really view them as competitors, but I showed them everything. I gave them all my process charts, my contracts, my scripts, everything, because I know I'm going to be able to execute better than them or, you know, whoever, or at least that I believe that. And that's what drives me. So that's why I don't, there's no line for me. I share openly and freely everything that we do. Well, there's no, like, there's no limitation on the amount of money that's in the world. There's no limitation on the amount of deals that are out there, right? Like you've said it before on podcasts, like there are so many self storage deals or development opportunities, so you can't do them all. And right. There's just, you know, it's not so much like, okay, I got to hide everything and because um, I don't want people to take it. Like, there's endless amounts of opportunity. And I don't think everybody realizes that. Realizes that It's kind of a hard thing to, you know, just accept and, and move forward with. And I mean, even me, right? Like a lot of my processes and stuff, like I have gathered from our conversations, from listening to you on podcasts, from just just talking like i mean i've tried different things i've tried your ways i've tweaked it's like okay like that doesn't work for me this does work for me like hey let's um let's try this crm instead but at the core i mean you have to be able to execute like you're saying um we were talking about a development deal and you said something i said something like oh well yeah but do we want to tell the seller like what we do and like, you know, that it's going to be a self-storage development. Like, cause what if he's like, Hey, this is great. I'm just going to go develop my, myself. And you just kind of chuckled and you're like, well, good luck. Like, okay, good luck to him. Like, <laughs> sure. He can go for it. And it kind of clicked. It was like, okay, true. Like it, it's not, it's not, it's execution. It comes down to execution. Like you, there's no need to hide what you're doing. You know, it's like, yeah, we're a self-storage development company. That's what we're doing. And, um, if the guy wants to go do it that himself, then he can he can go ahead and give it a shot, and you'll go on to the next deal. But most likely, and let me flip that. Okay, let me flip that instead of looking at it through the lens of scarcity of what if he goes and does the deal. Let's let's flip it to the lens of abundance. We've actually done this already on a deal recently. We told the seller exactly what we're doing. We told him the numbers. We told them why we needed to pay what we needed to pay for the land. And if he if he would be open to it, instead of us paying the cash, because you know what are you going to do with all that you know three million bucks or what have you? You're going to put it into a checking account, earning less than one percent interest. You're going to put it in the stock market, which is you know not doing that very hot right now. Right. Or do you want to put it into one of our deals and you know get a twenty plus percent internal rate of return? And so he said, Yeah, I would, I would love that. So. Just by telling the seller that we were going to do a self-storage development, instead of taking the cash, he ended up um, transferring over the land via partnership, joint venture partnership. So now instead of us having to come with all this down payment cash, we just got a bunch of equity that we can use against our construction loan just because he wants to be a partner as opposed to being just a straight seller. And it's more tax advantage for him. Instead of having to pay all these capital gains, we can use our depreciation from our cost segregation studies to offset his gain from his portion of the profits on the deal. Dude, I love that strategy. It's just amazing. You know, I have a um, a meeting this next week with a, a seller of some land, and you know, I'm talking to him about different options. Like, yeah, like, okay, you could buy it or uh, possibly 
you know, joint venture and keep the keep the land in the deal and they'll work towards down payment and everything. And I, I just never thought of, okay, why why not take it to the next step? Bring a plan and say, look, this is exactly what I'm doing. This is exact like these are the numbers. This is what it'll be worth. Like this is why I can pay you this amount and not like, you know, the five hundred thousand dollars more that you want for from it. Uh and work with them. Like that just it didn't cross my mind to go to that extent, but I love that. So one of the things that, you know, we were talking about before we started recording was a conversation that we had regarding decision-making and stress. And I have found that it's just much easier to live life being completely open. When you're an open book, all of a sudden now you get all these opportunities that present themselves that you didn't know were there because you don't know the skill set or the needs of the person that's listening to what you're saying. So we tell our sellers all the time, you know, we send them our track record sheet. Look at the 40 something deals we've done in the last five years. Look at what we bought them for. Look at what we sold them for. You know, we're going to do something similar with your property or your land. And it's going to look like one of these, you know, X, Y, Z deals that we have on this sheet. Um, and we've gotten a lot of help from sellers in all types of regards, you know, being a partner with joint venture, staying on after purchase to help with the transition process, you know, look at, look at Ironton, how much, um, the seller has been helping us out on that deal, you know, yeah. Connecting us with really great, you know, resources in the local market. Cause she has a super deep knowledge and relationship and network in that market. I mean, it's been, I, I think it's just easier that way. And one of the things that I always talk about is, you know, I, I, I see people that never take stress into the equation, right? They're always trying to maximize dollars, but what they don't realize is, you know, if, if you don't take in your happiness or your stress into the equation, like, why are we doing all this? You know, being an entrepreneur is much more stressful than just going to a job, you know, clocking in and then clocking out and not worrying about it till the next time you get to that job. Right. Um, so what's the point? You know, I don't need to be some ultra hundred billionaire. I could probably live the same life having a couple million, you know, and be way less stressed and be able to, you know, travel through Brazil for six months at a time and still run my team and run my business. Um, still raising millions of dollars a week. Yeah. So it's just, it's one of those things where it's, you gotta, you gotta realize where you're going first, right? Like what, what is the ultimate goal? A lot of business owners, they don't really know what their goal is. My goal is to build up a portfolio of 80 to 90 class A self-storage facilities and then sell them in the next 10 to 15 years and be done. That's the goal. Yeah. Very easy. And if nothing, if something presents itself that doesn't fit that goal, we just don't do it. Yeah, I hear you, man. Um, you put it into like stress into monetary terms for me one time. You say you said something like, "Okay, I look at this deal, and I look at the end of it, and it's like, all right, so I'll expect to make." two hundred thousand dollars three hundred thousand dollars on this deal no doubt big chunk of money like that's great fantastic right and then you look and you say okay well like what do i have to do to um to earn that money what do i have to put into and what does that stress level look like right and there's deals where it's like yeah you will make a couple hundred grand on it or more even 
And you say, no, it's not worth it. Like, in fact, you take it to the opposite where you say, hey, I'd rather pay a couple hundred grand to get out of this stressful deal than to stay in it and to make that couple hundred grand. And not many people look at life that way, you know, like it's just, it's hard to, to see through that and hard to see like, okay, life's not about just working endlessly, tires, you know, super tired and stressed all the time. Um, and you're just really aging yourself to make this chunk of money. Like there's, again, there's an endless amount of, of deals out there. Why stay in that? So, uh, anything, can you touch on that? Yeah. I mean, so it's, you, you hit the nail on the head there. So, you know, there's situation and we don't even have to talk about deals. Let's just use like a common occurrence. Um, how about you're driving on the side of the road and you're going to something that has a time constraint. You have to be there at a certain time. And all of a sudden you get a flat tire. You don't know how to change your flat. At that point, you I always like to ask myself, like, how much would I pay to get out of this situation right now? And if that amount is over a certain amount, like if that amount is more than what I would have paid for triple A to have that insurance, knowing that they can come out and change out, change my tire within, you know, 20 minutes of me calling them, I should have made that decision on the front end, right? So I'm always thinking on the back end, like if this goes bad or if I don't feel comfortable, what is the monetary value I would exchange in order to get out of this situation, right? Another perfect example I, for example, flying down here to Brazil or flying back, that's even a better example, flying back from Brazil to the United States, knowing that I have to work the very next day, but it's going to be roughly 16 hours of travel. And if I say I I get coach because it's way cheaper and there happens to be a baby sitting behind me or something that causes me not, or I can't recline to be able to sleep and, and, and rest, that affects my business in a monetary way. Because if I can't use my brain properly, if it's not working and firing all, on all levels, I am literally losing money, right? I'm losing potential profit earning ability. So instead of me doing that, why not just pay the extra $1,000 for a first class seat where I can sleep all night, show up in Chicago at you know 3 in the morning and be ready to go for that day? You know, yep. so that's just those things that I always try to make. You know, people look at everything that involves money and people always look at it as a cost. And you really got to look at it like it's an investment. You know, every decision you make, even if it has nothing to do with money, has a monetary consequence on your life. Everything. Yep. It's amazing. You uh and then once in a while you'll do audits, right? Even on your time and say like, okay, where am I? Like, where am I not valuing my time? Like, tell us uh, how you were saying with like the bank fees the other day. It's just uh, it's something yeah. so simple and so stupid, but it just, you weren't even realizing you were doing it. Go ahead, I'll let you say. So the company once a year, once every two years, depending on how many new staff we have, you have to do a one week time audit. And that time audit, how it works is you set, you 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 because entrepreneurs we kind of work all the time have to kind of set a time frame so i'll say okay my working hours for this week is going to be 8 a.m to 8 p.m and from 8 a.m to 8 p.m an alarm goes off on my phone every 15 minutes 
And every 15 minutes, I write down exactly what I was doing for the last 15 minutes. Now, yes, your productivity is going to nosedive for that week. But in the future, it's going to 3, 4, 5x. So here's an example from a previous time audit. I think it was like two, three years ago. I I did a time audit, and I found out I was wasting like six hours a week driving to and from the bank to collect, to and from the title company into the bank to collect checks from closings and deposit them because I didn't want to pay the wire fees. Because it was like, oh, it's 35 bucks per wire fee and once you receive it and when you send it. And I was like, this is crazy. So I'm tr- what I'm telling myself is that my time is worth less than $35. Like, that's ridiculous. So I went to my bank. I said, hey, so I don't have to ever deal with checks again. How much is it going to cost me to have treasury management services? And it was something dumb, like 50 bucks a month. So basically what I was telling myself without realizing, because I was looking at those wire fees as a cost and why I wanted to run my company super lean, as opposed to looking at my time as an investment, what I was saying was that my time was worth less than $50 a month. How ridiculous is that, right? So immediately we rule across the entire company. No one ever picks up or deposits checks. Everything is ACH'd and wired no matter what. Love it. Love it. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, sometimes it just kind of takes that like outside perspective uh, just to make you realize like, man, I could use an audit right now. I'm struggling with the the work from home balance, right? So, um, you know, we I, I've house hacked like several times. So I'm, I'm full time into self storage, but I still love like the house hacking method, right? So I'm in a duplex right now. Uh, it's a beautiful house, beautiful neighborhood, everything. But it's two bedrooms, and we had a baby. So now it's okay. One's the baby's bedroom, and one's the master bedroom. So my office, like right now, I'm sitting in the middle of the house, and <laughs> like it just recently after. I mean, our my baby's almost six months old now, right? And just recently, it clicked. Like, oh, like maybe you should go rent an office. Like maybe you should, you know, go either buy a space or rent an office, something stupid. Because it's like, I don't want to pay 500 bucks a month, like, you know, or a grand a month doing it. Man, the past week, I've gone to uh, WeWork in Detroit just to like test it out. I've gone there twice. In the six hours I've been at WeWork uh, on one day, I have gotten more done in that six hours than I had the entire week. Like I just went on Friday, got done more done than the entire week. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I, I don't know. Like my time is, is worth it. But sometimes it's just hard to see, to see the light, you know? Yeah, you have to, I mean, these time audits are perfect for this, right? Because it shows you what your productivity is and then you can assign dollar values to each one of the things that you're doing. So let's say you're working from your kitchen and every three times a day, you have to like shut down your office, move it so the family can eat and then set it back up. How much time is that taking? How much money have you lost? I mean, th- those time edits, they're brutal. I'm not going to lie. They are brutal to do, but they offer so much in the form of understanding where your time is going and what your time is actually worth. Me and Steven know exactly how much we make per hour now based on the tasks that we're doing and why some tasks we should no longer do and hire people to do for us because it just isn't worth our time, right? Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, man. That's really cool. So um, 
I guess a couple things I wanted to to talk about. One, like I love the creative finance strategy like that you're talking about with development. So it wasn't that long ago though where you said to me, "Hey Sean, like we you, you don't bring us any more development deals at this moment. Like we're cutting back. Like we're not doing any developments. We're too heavy on that end. We're take like we want to balance our our risk overall." That was I think like a little bit before bank interest rates have just shot up or, you know, practically doubled from where they were uh, a year ago. And uh, it seems like you've kind of switched a little bit and you are now again, like heavily leaning into the ground up developments um, and you're getting creative with it. So can you touch on that? Sure. So there's a few things here. As interest rates go up so rapidly, this velocity is pretty unprecedented. And the problem is that sellers typically live about 12 months in the past as far as valuations, and buyers live about 12 months into the future. So you got a, a whole two-year disconnect on existing property pricing, right? So let's look a year ago. Interest rates were, I can get, I can buy a self-storage facility with a sub-5% interest rate, and sellers are still thinking that that's where the interest rates are as far as their valuations on their facilities. But then when I go, you know, I'm saying, okay, I'm going to buy a facility. Due diligence could be as long as, you know, from, from the first day we start talking with the seller to the day we close, that can be six to nine months, depending on how fast the negotiations go, contracts, due diligence, what have you. So I have to be thinking where interest rates going to be a year from now, not even today, a year from now. So now I have sellers that are valuing their facilities based off of say a 5% interest where, you know, their price makes sense on a 1.3 debt service coverage le level with those interest rates. And then you have me looking at, you know, five, potentially 6% Fed funds rate, which means m my minimum interest rate when I go to a bank is like 8%, right? Or higher, 8.5%. So the DSCR on that is not going to allow me to pay the price that the seller wants. So you have a few options for here, right? Obviously, the easiest and you know, least amount of work is to say, hey, we're not going to do a deal and try to wait for that lag time for us to get into an environment where interest rates have been roughly the same for about 12 months and sellers are finally accepting the fact of that, right? That's, you miss a lot of deals that way. The second way is to say, all right, Mr. Seller, I'm going to give, I'm going to connect you with my banker and he's going to tell you what type of leverage he can give me and the debt service requirements that are needed. And you you do the math on your side with your NOI to see what I can pay for your facility. And it's, you know, it's going to be much lower than what you think it is. So that's also not a, a great way because you know nobody wants this, this, nobody wants to to take that much of a haircut like that. So there's another option, <clears throat> which is to say, all right, so I, I could pay you your price. But I could pay your price with the interest rates that we had a year ago when that price made sense. No bank is going to offer that to me, so you need to be my bank. Are you willing to earn interest, get your price, and earn additional interest on top of that, that money and allow me to take this facility to where it needs to be? Because you know we, only buy, we will never buy stabilized facilities. This wouldn't work with a stabilized facility. And that has worked a few times where we've gotten seller finance offers. Now, say the seller doesn't want to do the financing structure because, you know, whatever. They have large note on their property that can't be paid off with the down payment. Well, then you have the option of partnering with them. 
you know, let's 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 do a joint venture partnership. You you keep your debt in place, so I don't have to go get debt. Your debt's probably way cheaper than I'm going to be able to get. And then we will split the profits accordingly, you know, whatever we decide. And all this is super creative, so there's no playbook. You just have to you have to do what's called, you know, a talk off, as Eddie Speed would say. You got to slow down the conversation. You got to really listen to what the needs are of the seller and find a way to make a win win win. So win for you, win for the seller, win for the facility. So there's there's a ton of ways that you can get creative based on what's going on in the environment. And one of the questions you had asked me before we started recording was, what are your predictions for the market? And, you know, people that only have been doing real estate for, you know, one decade, two decades, they think that this is like worst case scenario ever because we've been basically addicted to this easy money policy, a 0% money policy. But you got to realize in the 80s, interest rates were 18 to 20%. And it's not like all real estate stopped functioning. People were doing deals in the 80s, you know? So how are they doing deals in the 80s? That's when you start looking back and you see, okay, there was assumptions of mortgages. There was seller financing. There was, you know, equity trade agreements. There was a, there was a bunch of things that you can do that don't revolve around just a traditional financing from a bank with a down payment. Yep, love it. I, I think, you know, one strategy that uh, I've been listening to a lot of creative finance uh, lately, and some of it's uh, Pace Morby, and he's not, he's focuses a lot more on like residential, but it's the same methods. You know, you can apply, there's really no rules, right? Like you can get as creative as you want. You just have to think outside the box, which is hard to do. But as you build up these tools, then you can get more creative and kind of put different tools together to get the job done. Um, and a lot of sellers I'll find, they'll say, well, will you sell or finance? They'll say, uh, well, you know, I would sell or finance with, if you gave me like a $1 million down payment on my, you know, two and a half million dollar facility or something. Um, and it's like, well, okay, I don't have a million dollars sitting around, but one strategy, which I haven't yet executed, but am working towards and like giving this offer is okay like we'll go to the bank here's your million dollar down payment we'll put that down but the problem is the bank wants first position right so you seller finance the other one and a half however you're either in second position we have to do that later or you have to do a personal guarantee or we have to move it into um like a joint venture agreement to do this i don't know that's where it kind of gets a little not sticky, but just hard to convince the seller because they want to be on, they want to be first position. It's like, you know, you can't, you can't do both necessarily, but have you done anything similar to that? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of options, right? There's a bunch of ways. And I think that first starts with how you present the strategy, right? Instead of just saying, Hey, you willing to take terms? You say, hey, like I said, you know, I'm willing to pay your price if you give me the rate and terms that were available to me when your facility was worth this amount 12 months ago. So let's go pull up some term sheets that I had when I did deals during that time. And if you can match that, we can do it, right? Or you can do, um, like I said, these joint venture partnerships where they become an equity owner in the deal and there's no debt piece at all. And the down payment 
you know, if it's a syndication, if you're syndicating the funds, you can, they're down payment. I'm using air quotes for those that aren't watching. That can be an acquisition fee that's paid from the syndication to the seller as a part of the deal structure, right? Um, there's also, um, trying to remember the, the name of it. There's a structure that's similar to wholesaling where you put the property under a kind of like a contract that allows you to control it, but without actually having to purchase it. So, you know, like master lease type structure, but there's another name. I'm trying to remember what it was. A lot of my buddies and um, basically where you put it under under like escrow almost and it's not officially moved until like the whole agreement is is executed something like that so there's a strategy that you can use called a novation agreement and this is um, it's more typical in the industrial world but we're starting to see it make its way into residential multifamily self-storage so you can use novation contracts as well, which basically allows you to control the property without actually having to buy it. And then when you go to sell it, you can execute your purchase on it at the same time that you're selling and making your make your profit that way. So there's, I mean, there's a ton of ways. In, in real estate, the only thing that matters is control. It doesn't really matter who owns it, right? Right. Well, so the other thing with the the joint ventures and the uh, the creative finance, it, it saves you, unless I'm thinking about this incorrectly, I mean, it saves you a lot of time and, because you don't, all of a sudden, if somebody has uh, a piece of land that's worth $1 million and the total project, including the land cost, is going to be $4 million, right? And then you go to the bank and the bank says, okay, great, well, we need a 25% down payment. Typically, you go do a syndication, you're going to go do a 506B or 506C, you're going to raise that capital. It's going to take a little bit of time to do that. Um, and you come up with that $1 million. Instead of doing that, you are now using the value of the land as that down payment. That saves you a lot of time. Like you don't have to go raise all that capital. Maybe you have to make up the difference, right? A lot of it comes down to what, how, what does the land appraise at? right? Like that's a big unknown. And I don't know, I'd love to hear like how you handle that. Because if you go under agreement with the, the seller and you think it's worth $1 million, but then the appraiser says, well, it's only worth 750. You must have some sort of, of buffer there. Um, but on the flip side, it could be worth more than $1 million. And now you're even in a better position uh, with the bank. So I think that's like a, a really smart strategy. Yeah, so let's, I mean, let's talk about it from both sides, right? So on the first, you know, from the get-go, you have to be a good underwriter. And you have to know, let's, let's use a development deal, for example. If you see that all parcels of land in the county that are zoned for what you're zoned for are roughly the same size are going for $50,000 an acre, then you're not, you don't pay, don't offer 100000 an acre to the guy thinking that that's going to work with the appraisal, right? So that's strategy number one. Strategy number two is sometimes, depending on the size of the deal, paying for a third-party appraisal, not through a bank, but you just literally going to Collier's or one of these, you know, CBRE or whoever, and paying for your own, your appraisal is worth it and helps with the negotiation because now you have third-party proof of what the land is worth. And then, of course, with you know people like myself and Stephen, we built a business on buying off-market 
discounted deals, right? I think uh, over our track record, we have something like a 26% average discount to market across every one of our, our purchases. So that that's a double-edged sword. So yes, you're getting a good deal, but then when the land appraises, most appraisers will not give you the true value of the land. They're just going to look at the purchase agreement and say, this land is worth the whatever it says in the purchase agreement because why would anybody sell their land for less than what it's worth? And, you know, number one, I understand they're trying to, you know, protect their own tails because of all the, you know, the shady appraisal practices that happened during the financial crisis um, of 07, 08, 09. But then at the same time, uh, it's 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 one of those things where like okay how do we structure this so that there is no purchase agreement that they can look at right i love now doing these deals where the appraiser's like all right you sent everything over but i still need the purchase agreements like there's no purchase agreement this land was purchased in 1985 you, let me know what you think it's worth right and so that the reason it's a double edged sword is cuz you know you're getting a good deal, but the bank isn't giving you full value for that land. So that's where JV structures work really well when you know you have really good value, right? So say I, in this example, let's say I get the property under contract for a million, but actually, here, I'll just use a real example on one of our deals. So we bought, we bought land for 575,000 and it appraised at three, 3.5 million. It was in uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. But because there was a purchase agreement at 350, every time we went and the appraiser did the right thing, he gave us the real appraised value for the land. But every lender we went to said, "Hey, I understand it appraised for three million, but we're only going to give you five hundred and seventy-five thousand in value for this land because I can't give you equity for something you didn't pay for." You know that sucks. Whereas now, let's say I structure it like I structure this Charlotte, North Carolina deal, where. I tell the seller, okay, I'll give you five seventy-five, and then it appraises for three and a half million. But there's no purchase agreement. The bank has no other option but to give me three and a half million dollars in value for that. Isn't that ridiculous? So just by bringing the seller in, I'm getting way more value, which will allow me to potentially not even raise any capital for the down payment. And allow me to take on this entire deal without investors, right? So structures, right? So this is where I was kind of warning you before. You have a, an accountant brain, so you want rules and a playbook to follow, which is impossible when you're doing creative financing because it's all about listening to what the seller wants, okay? So you have a conversation. You say, seller, what do you need? Like, what are your immediate needs? What are your future needs? When do those things occur? So let's, let's use one that we're working on, for example, right now. The seller said, hey, you know, I want – this is a, a deal that we're doing – I want $3 million for this land, but I need, I need 490,000 down today or when the land closes and we say, okay, why is that? It's like, well, you know, we have, he has a sibling, the sibling is in some financial issues. He wants to make sure he doesn't live on the streets or what have you. Um, and he wants to have some, some money that the sibling can receive in order to live on. So he doesn't have to sell the house that they just bought them, right? So I say, okay, you know, what are those needs? So now we know the down payment amount. We know that the sibling needs some money to live on. What is that amount per month or per quarter? And let's structure the the deal so that's what we 
take into account when we're thinking about payments and the, the amount of money that you're not taking up front or in payments, let's treat that as equity, right? So that equity can be used as if you were a limited partner in our project or a co-GP in our project if we're not doing a syndication. And that money will grow as if it was actual cash invested in the deal, right? Or there's maybe there's other structures. So I mean, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can slice this thing up. So we had a, we had a deal where the seller wanted to pay for the grandson's or granddaughter's tuition, and so that's why they're like, "This is the amount of money I need right now." And I said, "Do you, do you need to pay for all four years of school today?" She said, "No, but I want to know I have it." I said, "Well, what?" when does the school bill? She says, well, it bills once a semester. I said, so why don't we do this? Why don't we give you the money that you need right now for today so that she can buy her books and whatever and get the first semester paid for? And then we structure the payment plan to be identical to what her tuition and living costs are per quarter. Because now I'm not having to raise as much money up front I'm able to control the property and then I could pay out of cash flows or out of a potential refinance proceeds down the line. So, you know, as syndicators, we're always trying to put the least amount of money out of our pocket day one because we have more potential to pay that cash down the line with a higher valued asset. So that that allows us to retain more ownership in the property as opposed to having to raise all of that capital day one and dilute our shares even more in that deal so i mean there's tons of ways to structure this right so that's that's the thing so when you're structuring this this is why i hate when people are like okay what should i offer them as a seller finance offer it's like you shouldn't be offering them anything you should be asking them questions that's how you offer seller finance is ask questions right what are you going to do with the money why do you need the money if i gave you all this money what are you what are you going to earn on it or you want to travel? Okay, how much does travel cost? Why don't I pay for your travel? Anytime you want to travel, I'll pay it that way, right? So there's all there's all the ways that you can structure this. So I guess my question is then, how are you structuring this from an agreement standpoint, right? Because one, there's no purchase agreement where you bought the facility or you're you know buying the facility for a million dollars, but you have some agreement, you know, or three and a half million, whatever it is. But you have some agreement where, hey, um, the uh, grandmother is paying tuition is going to get like twenty thousand dollars, like twice a year or something, right? Like, how are you? How do you set all this up? Like, that's where I mean, I'm like, I like, okay, great, like it all makes sense in theory, but how do we? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of trust involved and stuff, but how do you make it happen? How do you put it under some sort of contract or agreement? Yeah. So this goes back to our conversation we had on the phone the other day, Sean, that even though I know you're an accountant, you shouldn't be doing your own accountant work because it's a waste of your time and you can be doing things that are much higher value. So you know what I do? I type up an email that the, me and the seller agreed on all the terms, everything. And then I copy my attorney. I say, attorney, Put this into a legally binding agreement, and then they do it for me. <laughs> That's how I do it. <laughs> I love that, man. Okay, thank you, thank you. God, I so I need you to like step in and just like just <laughs> just give me a kick in the butt. Sometimes it's like you were the first person I was saying who told who's told me like 
stop doing all this accounting yourself. And I'm at the point now where it's just like, it just gets overwhelming. And I have a I have um, somebody on my team. Her name's Joanna. She's uh, she works virtually. She's fantastic. She does like all the bookkeeping for me and stuff. And then I have a CPA who's doing tax returns. But I'm still the bottleneck. I'm still in the middle. Anything something's complicated. Anytime it's like a new transaction, she doesn't know. Like I'm there. I'm still prepping all the work for the tax returns. Uh, and you're the first person who said like, dude, stop. Like, stop doing all that. Like, if you are a syndicator, if you're raising money for deals, your highest and best use is either going out and finding another deal, right? And like building that relationship or building relationships with investors. And I'll be honest, like, it's still something I'm I'm struggling with. I, I've thought about it quite a bit since our conversation, but. This is would be a great example of where your time audit would come in. Because once you do your time study, your time audit, you'll learn what your hourly rate is. And if you can find somebody to do that task for you for less than your hourly rate, then you should not be doing it, right? So same thing goes. I mean, you see this all the time with guys that get into flipping houses because they used to be a contractor, right? And they rarely ever are able to turn it into a business because all they see is like, why would I pay some drywaller $300 a day to drywall a house when I know how to do it it's because you shouldn't be doing that. You should be going out and finding more deals and raising money and debt for flipping houses to turn into a business. Right. You know, so that's what I keep talking about. It's, you know, people get a great book for people that are struggling with this is to read the E-Myth by Michael Gerber. And if you haven't read it, Sean, or if you have read it, you should reread it. I need to reread it. Because it, it says, yeah. Just because someone's a good technician doesn't mean they'll be a good manager. And just because someone's a good manager or a good technician doesn't mean they'll be a good company owner and vice versa, right? You may be a stellar accountant, the best accountant that's ever lived. But guess what? <laughs> I can hire an accountant to do exactly what you're doing for eight grand a year. So yeah. it's, are you saying that you're worth eight grand a year? Like that's ridiculous, you know? Right. Dude, you're, I mean, this is what I need to hear. It's, it's. It's real. Um, I think what I struggle with, right, is I didn't realize it, but it's control. I, I think I, I don't, I never have thought about myself as like a control freak in any way, right? But I, and I don't think that's what it is. It's more knowing and understanding that the people who I hired are doing it correctly, right? And so I'm building my business. Um, and I think kind of like you have, right, from the bottom up. I didn't go in with a ton of money uh, as a just a pure visionary saying like, hey, I'm going to hire all these executives. I'm going to hire this full team. I have all this startup capital. You guys do all these roles. It's like, no, I've started at the bottom. I've done every single role. So like I know how to do it. I know how to do it better than the person I'm hiring like potentially, right? And eventually I'll get to the point where I'm making enough where it's like I hire people who are even better than me. But I use a lot of um, like virtual employees and I have to teach them like how to just like run the business. I have to teach them about self-storage or real estate and they get better and better. But I have trouble letting go of the the control, right? It's like, okay, like before you do that, I want to make sure it's right. And when you have something like, I mean underwriting right that's like a big one or something about like keeping your 
your financial statements, um, keeping your, your bookkeeping, especially when you have investors involved in everything. Like it's tough because I want to know that everything is done properly because at the end of the day, like my name is, is a sign on the line, you know, like I'm, I'm putting myself out there. Um, so how do you balance that though? Like, so I'm going to answer a few of your questions here. So it, it comes down to like the fallacies that we tell ourselves, right? So one of the things that you said is, okay, I work from the ground up and I know I can do a better job than the person that I'm hiring to do this role. Okay. So let's say that you hire someone that's at 70% efficiency and quality that you are. Yeah. But guess what? You can hire two people and now you're at 140% of what you can, what you can handle. Right. So that's the first thing for things that are not like mission critical. Okay. Right. The second piece for things that are mission critical is to stop looking at those people that you're hiring as a cost and looking at as investors. So we talked about this as well. You know, I used to only hire accountants that, you know, if they got above a thousand bucks on a tax return, I was furious, right? That's, those are the people that you have to constantly be staying in the middle of because you're literally paying for what you get. And so you're wasting your time by having to constantly, number one, which is, I always talk about this, you're stressed, which means now you're not operating efficiently. You're not operating efficiently. Um, and number two, you're wasting your time. So instead of now my accountants, it's like eight grand a tax return, literally. And you know what is great about paying eight grand a tax return? I never have to worry that they know less than I do and that I have to double check the work. Yes, I'll scan it to make sure everything looks right. But these are the best accountants like in Chicago. So why... <laughs> You know, this is what I'm talking yeah. about. So it's either either you hire redundancy to for the people that are less efficient for less mission critical tasks, or you pay up for the skill. You know, stop trying to hire eight dollar an hour people for tasks that are twenty five dollar an hour tasks. And that's the, the very first thing that happens with a lot of people that try to run their entire business with virtual assistants is they go to you know Thailand or Philippines or India and they hire these three to eight buck an hour person thinking that they're superstars. But you can also go on those same websites like Upwork and you can hire like a part-time CEO for $1,000 an hour, right? So there's, there's, you have to match the skill level with the pay level required for that skill, you know? So instead of hiring a, a VA at eight bucks an hour from the Philippines and having to teach them how to underwrite self-storage, why don't you hire a virtual you know, someone on Upwork that is a hundred bucks an hour to do the underwriting, knowing that only takes them, you know, one hour instead of nine hours, and they have a degree in finance from Wharton. You know, wow, man, you're uh, you're really opening my eyes. You're, I love being called out. Like that's why I love our conversations because you literally you call me out on on everything, and it's like I, you know, I need that accountability. It's hard. It's hard just to get. Like you just get caught up in what you're used to doing. And uh, I mean, I've built my business off of virtual assistance, right? But like, I am still too much in the weeds on uh, facility management, like too much too. like I'm a bottleneck, right? Like underwriting. I mean, that's my background, accounting and, and finance. You know, I worked in, um, I worked in public accounting. I also worked in private equity. So it's like, I love getting in the Excel spreadsheet and, getting the work done. I get like a little bit of a high out of that. Uh, 
I don't know why. It's just like there's some satisfaction with, you know, just underwriting a deal and like really knocking it out. But it's it makes me a bottleneck. Like this past, I spent so usually good. Yeah. Usually the reason you're a bottleneck is because your processes are not written out. You, the reason you are a bottleneck is because you have not been able to take that information out of your head and put it on paper in an easy to follow way for someone else to do and replicate, right? So that is, that's what you're, everything you're telling me right now is screaming that your processes are not well defined and are not being reiterated every time there's a mistake. You have to go into your process, fix it, and make sure that the people you hired are following it to a T. Like, look at McDonald's. They hire teenagers that's never, that's usually their very first job, and they're able to run basically the largest corporation in the world, right? With teenagers. Right. That's right. because it, they tell you exactly how many – cut the bag this way, pour the fries into this basket this way, put it into the oil, and click this button that does it for this amount of time. Like you, That's how granular sometimes you have to get on your processes. Thank you so much for joining Sean and Fernando for this awesome conversation. This episode is a two-part series, so be sure to look out for Sean's next episode to listen to the rest of this inspiring conversation. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of The Gentle Art of Crushing It. It was an amazing episode. We know we sure learned a lot, and we hope you did as well. We want to take a second and thank you so much for viewing or listening to this episode. And please just know that we only ask for one favor, and that is to make this life magnificent. Thank you, and have a wonderful day.